Hello everyone, you're listening to the Attempt Adventure Podcast, a podcast about finding adventure every day and making your life just a little more interesting. From Boulder, Colorado, I'm your host, James Barrett, joined as always by my co-host, Michael DeRogers in Bangkok, Thailand. James, this is the final episode of season one. It is. We made it. I mean, we had some hiccups, but we made it. Well, this was a weird year, but... I mean, who knows? Is 2022 going to be better? I don't know. I don't know. It does sound like you're saying 2022. We're in the third season of COVID. This is awful. This year was worse than last year. (laughs) (laughs) How are they getting worse? (laughs) But it's over, James. It's over. And I'm drinking, so it's good. And you're drinking. Well, what are you drinking today? I am drinking a St. Vrain Cidery Gingerbread Cider. That sounds amazing. It says, Spice Cider pairs the subtle warmth of ginger and cinnamon with rich dark sugar and crisp apple. That sounds it's so a good. Local cidery. I wish I could ask you to save me one, but I have no idea when I'm ever going to get the chance to come to <laughs> see you again. <laughs> Apparently it's a seasonal thing. They do it every winter. Well, then I'll have to plan. Well, James, you had a birthday. How was your birthday? I did. It was good. My wife and I. Um, we just took a little trip up to Fort Collins, Colorado. It's about an hour North just because really, um, Mm -hmm. we stayed at this cool hotel called the Elizabeth, the Elizabeth Mm -hmm. hotel. It's like a music themed hotel. They have a jazz lounge and oh, that's cool. You can rent instruments. They have like a whole vinyl library that you can go and each room has a record player. That's awesome. It was really fun. Well, James, I guess that was your new and adventurous thing. Um, but you did have a penalty. And your penalty was to have coffee outside. Did you did you have some coffee outside? I did. By strict definition, I did. Okay. I did good. have coffee yeah. and I did drink it outside <laughs> at work. It's the end of um, the year. That's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, I I did. I I had this grand plan of like making coffee and taking mm-hmm. a picture of it by the mountain and stuff, but it was a very busy week at work. Well and, you had a blizzard, didn't you? And we had a we had like a I mean, I don't even know it was a blizzard. It was just terrible, terrible wind. It was more wind than anything. We got like an inch of snow. It was really depressing. <laughs> I'm like, at least if we're going to have like a hundred mile an hour winds, at least snow. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Well, happy birthday, James. Glad to hear it was a good one. And Thank you very uh, much. That's awesome. Uh, for me, this week was kind of a weird week. It was a busy week. You know, we're getting ready for Christmas, but I have done something that I could, I guess we can consider adventurous. There was a book fair uh, at one of the malls the other day, and I picked up some Thai language books. I'm deciding that I'm going to work really hard at my language proficiency this year. I'm going to take it more seriously than I have in the past. And so I've started studying. I, I guess it's an adventure. Learning a language is an adventure. I can speak Thai. I'm not very good at the grammar. I'm not super good at it, but I can get by. But I've decided that I want to take it more seriously. And the reason being is that eventually, maybe 10 years down the road, I need to start working on my citizenship. And one of the requirements Mm -hmm. is uh, passing a Thai language proficiency exam. It's not a super hard exam, but it would be good to be a bit better at it than I am. The reason I want that is just because it's so exhausting dealing with visas all the time, dealing with paperwork. And then... When COVID happened and they closed the borders, there were a lot of people who got separated from their families because they were foreigners and their spouses and children were Thai. And there were, you know, there was even a guy who, whose pregnant wife was here in Thailand while he was abroad. He wasn't able to see his child for like six months because he couldn't get back Mm -hmm. in the country. And I just don't want anything like that to ever happen again. I was very lucky that I was here when the borders closed rather than out of the country. 
because I was almost on a visa run. Where would you have been stuck? I would have been stuck in Laos. <laughs> oh, that's not great. I had a bus ticket like two days before the border closed, and I decided oh, I'm just going to stay and and see if I can just. <laughs> yeah, it, and it was close. It would have been awful. You would have been stuck in Laos for like a year. <laughs> you know what? I would have gone for the emergency repatriation uh, through the embassy. Just come home. <laughs> anyway, I d- that didn't happen, and so I'm starting to learn Thai more seriously, and that's my thing this week. It's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. This week we're going to be talking about a really interesting story. We've got a very special guest, Sam Thiara, on today, who's going to be talking about an adventure, a really amazing adventure that he went on. And uh, we're going to have him on in just a second. Before we do that, ladies and gentlemen, did want to mention that this is the final episode of season one. Thank you for being with us this year. We're going to be coming back in season two with more adventures for you, probably in February. But if you enjoyed this season, please do get in touch and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave a review. Give us a five-star review if you are feeling generous, because that does help. So leave us a review on Mm -hmm. your podcast app of choice. Send us an email, hello at attemptedventure.com. And if you would like to be a guest on the next show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. Definitely. And we really do appreciate it very, very much. We enjoy doing this. And, you know, I think this sort of started out once again for the whatever time this is that we've launched a podcast. Mm-hmm. It started out for, for the two of us. It started out because we like to hang out and we like to talk about random stuff yeah. and just, you know, have a good time. But the support that we've had has been incredible, to say the very least. And we're really happy that we're able to make something that people enjoy, which is was the goal all along. Yeah. So thank you and cheers everybody. Uh, James, we grew up in the U S and one of the questions that you get when you're living in a country like the U S or a country like Canada, a country made up of immigrants is what are you? You know, people will ask that. And I've seen a lot of things online. You know, they'll say, oh, you're not Irish. You don't live in Ireland. You have no ties mm-hmm. to the country. I think what they're missing is that our countries are immigrant countries and that our countries teach us how important diversity is. As a kid, think about all the assignments that you had to do in school where you had to research. When did your family immigrate to the country? You know, when did your, you know, where did they come from? What is your, your history? And the reason that that's so important in our country is because we are a country of immigrants and we like to celebrate that we can come from anywhere and be American or be Canadian. I think that sometimes people that live in a country that is a nation state where you're in that country and you are of that country and that's it don't quite understand why this is important to us. But it's because it's part of our national character and I think it is a a great thing about our country. So I wanted to preface this by saying that, and then I'm going to ask James, what are you? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> mine's boring. Okay. <laughs> um, let me, you know what? Just for fun, I will pull up my actual DNA results right here. Oh, I've never done that. That's because, awesome. Because I'm a white person and I have done the DNA results. My wife has also done it. My wife is not white and hers is much more interesting than mine. So I am 99.9% European. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> 97.9% is British and Irish, and 2% is French and German. My wife, who is black, is more French and German than I am. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a lot more and a lot of other stuff. <laughs> I don't know my genetic makeup, but I just do know from my family history that I'm mostly English and Scottish, a little Irish. Uh, but on my dad's side, I am French, hence my surname. And my grandmother was Finnish. And so I do have some Finnish in me as well. The connections that I have to those countries are are very far removed. Right. And then we have a guest. We have people like Sam. And we're going to actually let him tell the story. But this is a story of a man who goes in search of his own heritage and his own family history. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Thiara, the author of the book, Lost and Found, which is available on Amazon. You can get the uh, physical book, an ebook, or an audiobook, and it's really good. So check it out. All right. Well, welcome back to the Attempt Adventure podcast. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by adventurer, author, and storyteller, Sam Thiara. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me here today. I look forward to sharing and uh, being able to have a really great conversation about travel. Before we get started, the very first thing I always like to ask our guests is uh, just tell me a little bit about who you are and where you are and some of your history with adventure and travel. Sure. So the easiest way for me to describe myself is there are five things that guide and direct me in life. Servant leadership, storytelling or story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. Those five things have enabled me to help individuals, teams, organizations, uh, educational institutions, and nonprofits to their pinnacle best. But it's also enabled me to be all of the things you've said with regards to story sharing, storytelling, author, um, educator, mentor, coach, everything. It all becomes that. The best way for me to also describe it is that uh, I was born in England, raised in Canada. My parents come from Fiji Islands, which is near Australia, and my grandfathers come from India. And presently, I do reside in uh, Vancouver, Canada, which is a beautiful part of the world. So that gives you a bit of a snippet of who this individual is. Right. And well, that identity ties in so much to your book. And I'd like to talk about that. That's really uh, why we're here today. So briefly, would you tell us a little bit about the book itself and the adventure that led you to write that book? Sure. The book is called Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself. And I think the the title really captures the essence of the journey because part of it is our ancestral roots were lost. Uh, and I'll explain why. And also my identity was lost. I mean, I'm a British-born Canadian with you know ties to Fiji and some very thin ties to India because I've, I had never been there before. And I just remember growing up in Vancouver and, you know, a common question that uh, people would ask, and actually it was just asked of me two days ago, what part of India are you from? Now, if you look at me physically, I look Indian. So that natural first question as an icebreaker or conversation is what part of India are you from? And my reply back is, well, I was born in England and raised in Canada. Mm -hmm. And then people would be like, no, 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 your parents, what part of India are they from? I'm like, well, my parents come from Fiji Islands. And then they stare at me going like, wait, are you Indian? I'm like, well, my grandfathers come from India. But then the other side of it is others will then reply back saying, 
actually, you're not Indian, you're Canadian. And, you know, you struggle with that whole identity piece. I mean, even growing up in uh, Vancouver, my parents never prevented us from learning about our Indian culture and heritage. It's just we all got very busy. And I come and in Vancouver, where I grew up, it's a very predominantly uh, white uh, society where our high school maybe had about 500 kids and only seven visible minorities. So you assume yourself to be Canadian. I mean, heck, we, uh, of course, we play hockey, we uh, eat hot dogs. And when we fall down and we bleed, we bleed maple syrup. That's how much Canadian I am. <laughs> right. But uh, there was always this part of me that, um, on the one hand, was embarrassed by my Indian identity because it wasn't Canadian. And equally, there was a hunger to learn more about it. And I remember running into my classes in high school before the term would start. I'd run in and tell the teacher there's a there's a mistake. I mean, you you'll see the name Ajit Thiara. It's actually Sam. I just wanted to clarify that. But part of the reason being is, I mean, you're sitting in a room and you know they say Elsie, Charles, Mary, George, Ajit, and people are like, who the heck is this Ajit guy? Like, what is that right. name? Right. But it was actually when I got to university, I got into a more global audience where I met people from all around the world and and people from India and Pakistan and places like that who started to share with me their, you know, cultural identity, but not only cultural identity, more of the food and more of the aspects of what it means to be Indian or Pakistani. And it made me realize that that part really was missing in my life. So that's the part about the identity piece. But also, it was about not being able to really understand where my ancestors had come from. We do know it was northern India and Punjab, but equally at the same time, I mean, all I really had was this faded photograph. That's it, a faded right. photograph wow. of people from the village and very little information, like just the name of the village, the town maybe it was close to. And the district. And I thought to myself, you know, back in uh, 2004, here's an adventure that I want to undertake. I, I, I think what I would like to do is try to see if I can find our grandfather's house because nobody in my family knew where it was. Again, and part of the reason being is, you know, we are generations separated from India because my grandfather jumped on a steamer ship in Calcutta back in 1905, maybe when he was about. 17 years old. And that's when he left India. And apart from that, no one had really visited India except my dad's older brother. But he passed away many years ago. So before we could pull that information, all I was able to get was this photograph and very little information. But it was a journey. And, and I guess what prompted me to go is I'm someone who thrives in ambiguity and uncertainty. I thought, okay, here's here's a challenge. Here's an adventure. And uh, then that's it. I, I took off and uh, with my wife and we headed off to India for the very first time and uh, learned a lot along the way. But this is where Lost and Found, seeking the past and finding myself really was the essence of this trip. Right. Well, and you, you even wrote in the book that you wanted the journey to be difficult and challenging. I think that in a way, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine it would have been less of a satisfying adventure if you had known exactly where to go from the very beginning. Absolutely. And I've shared that with a lot of people. Like, I mean, if it was as simple as 
you know, get off the plane. Here's where the village is. We get there. We, you know, arrive and then people, we start talking to them and we find out, yeah, that's our ancestral roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah. Number one, it wouldn't have been as great a story, but equally through that process, I had to learn who I am. And it, if it was that simple, I don't think I would have really been able to capture the essence of the identity piece. I mean, the simplest way for me to describe this book or this journey is I'm a foreigner going to a land that should not be foreign to me in search of a needle in a haystack, but not even sure where this haystack was. That really is the essence. And only by those obstacles was I able to capture my own identity, which then led me to trying to find my village. So I thrive in that environment. Absolutely. I've always loved the idea of traveling like with a purpose, with a goal in mind, more of a quest than a vacation in a way. Mm -hmm. And I've always really appreciated reading stories, uh, reading news about people that undertake some kind of journey with an actual goal in mind. I feel like it really just enriches the, the whole experience. Well, and I think you you bring up a really good point here because also what it made me realize is the differentiation or the difference between a tourist and a traveler. There's nothing wrong with being a tourist, but a tourist just wants to see but not experience. So they'll you know want to stay in the really nice hotel, get on right. the palace on wheels and show me the Taj Mahal and all that, but I don't want to see the poverty. I don't want to see the mounds of garbage and mm-hmm. uh, the slums. Now, from a traveler's standpoint, it's not about being voyeuristic, but I had to experience the poverty on a massive scale because the idea is that is part of India. That's the fabric. and It's reality, right? It is. And you can't shield your eyes away from it. So there's a difference between a traveler and a tourist. And my wife is a tourist. Mm-hmm. I'm a traveler. So you can imagine how difficult that could be at times. Right. I did enjoy the uh, the parts of your book where you sort of <laughs> compared your experiences together, especially with the uh, with the shopping and, and oh, all those experiences yeah. that you've had. I really got a kick out of that. But let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned there, because that was uh, one of my questions was with writing. How did you balance that? You know, how did you balance trying to be realistic about certain things that you saw and experienced with also trying not to be too negative about it either? Because you also don't want to come across as, you know, complaining or or looking down either. How do you balance that as a traveler and as a writer? Well, and and I think by being a traveler, you're looking at it through a very objective eye, and you're not taking the your your home country with you where you travel. I think it's all about exploring, being curious, and I mean, for example, by being open to these experiences, what I realized is. For example, the poverty. The poverty was really difficult to see, but balanced into that was also what I experienced was this resiliency in the people and the fact that, you know, they've got their worries. I mean, their worries are about survival and about just inking out a bit of a life. Well, here's the thing. We have equally, we have worries, except to me, my worries seem almost superficial compared to what mm. they hold. Right. And I think it was more of, you know, with regards to capturing the essence of it, the benefit is when I was traveling, and I've done this numerous times, is I, I do take a journal with me to capture the senses and the feelings. But I don't write in volumes at that point. It's just those memory triggers that I do at that point. And that's where, you know, in my journal, 
it became helpful to me when I wrote the book because the book became almost like a chronological piece where I could reflect back and say, oh, okay, when I was, uh, you know, seeing the poverty, here's what it meant. And, you know, when I saw the magnificence of the Taj Mahal, I captured it at that moment, almost like a snapshot. And that helped me to write this book because of those facts. But one thing I didn't want the book to be uh, was... I went here, then I went here, then I went here. Here's the history of this place. And almost like a that sort of travel guide. Not a travel blog, right? No. And instead, like, for example, when I was um, traveling to, let's say, the Jama Masjid, you know, what I wanted to do was to write it in a way that was almost different than, you know, just saying, here's where I wound up going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would write about things like touching the walls and, you know, to, uh, the, with the walls being so sandstone and granular and then walking barefoot on the marble floor and feeling the coolness of that. That's what I wanted to write about, but not, I mean, I talk a little bit about, well, Jama Masjid is one of the largest mosques that holds this many people, but I wanted to give the description of what it was like to be there. I want to take you with me on that journey. Right. I think that the part where I uh, felt that the most was when you were talking about the golden temple. And I think that that yeah. is something that's very personal to you as well. Um, and that's the part where I could really just absolutely feel the senses that you experienced when you were there. And I thought that was a really beautiful part of the book. It was interesting because in the book itself, so I'm not an Orthodox Sikh and the holiest of all places is the golden temple. It, it's seeking Sikhism through the eyes of maybe somebody who's not really that familiar with it. But the amazing part about that, uh, that I wrote about was how it almost felt like somebody came and put a blanket around me and that it was enveloped in a blanket and how much comfort I felt there. But also the fact that I wound up weeping and I don't know why I was weeping. And it's so funny if, if you mind, uh, could I just read a small portion Please, I would love that. Yes, please. This is what I wrote. While I was sitting there listening and absorbing everything, while the room was crowded, it felt empty as if nothing existed at the moment except me and the Garanth, which is the holy book. I felt a sense of euphoria and calmness and relief at having arrived. I closed my eyes and the Girtans, which are the hymns, penetrated me. I began thinking of my family and friends, my experiences, my journey to India and what the future might hold. I was trying to embrace a blessing for the entire world, for hardships to be removed, pain to be gone, hate to disappear. I was praying for the world, and I don't pray. It was as if someone had put a blanket around me to comfort me, and I began to weep. Not in sadness, but because I felt overwhelmed, a weeping that was deep within me from a place that never knew existed. With my eyes closed, the tears streamed down my face, and I could feel the droplets scaling down and falling to my clasped hands at chest level. Were the tears a sign of pain leaving my body? Were they my way of appreciating something that I never really embraced? All I know is that I felt calmness that I had never felt before. It just felt right. So to your point, that's that's the type of descriptor that I wanted to really put in there, that just the, the power of what it meant to be in that space. Right. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. I love traveling and visiting holy sites and churches and mosques and temples uh, whenever I'm traveling because I think that even if you either aren't practicing or if you don't follow a certain faith, you can still get so much out of that. And you really get to 
experience the heart of a place when you yes. even superficially experience the faith and the religion of that place. And it can give you such a deep experience. And I think that, um, well, for you, it was probably another step in reconnecting with your own family history as well, I imagine. Oh, totally. And and I think it was also that identity piece, because really what the essence of that identity piece was, prior to India, I saw my life as what I call a tali. And a tali is a platter, but it's segmented into different dishes. So you've got everything segmented, but nothing really intersects. And that's what my life was like before I went to India. But I remember I, the day I was going to the Golden Temple, I had this epiphany and I woke up like at four in the morning. And my realization is I'm not a Thali, like this segmented dish. That's what my life was like because I was Indian, Canadian, Fijian, and British. Instead, no, I'm Kichiri. Kichiri is a rice dish, which is a blend of flavors. So you go to your fridge, you get the vegetables, you cook it with spices, but it's this blend of flavors. Uh, it'd be the equivalent of, let's say, an omelet or a bibimbap something to that extent. And I think that's where, you know, lost and found seeking the past and finding myself, finding myself was that I'm actually kitchery, this blend of flavors. And I don't need to segment myself into these different areas. Right. I think that's brilliant. Another quote that you had that I really liked, you said, uh, one can describe life in India, but it is always an understatement. Is there anything that really surprised you or what surprised you the most when you were in India? <laughs> Actually, when I got off the plane and right from that moment, I don't think India will, you'll ever prepare yourself for India. I mean, I still remember like you're in the airport and it's just like any other airport, uh, you know, people walking around and, you know, you see uniforms and you see dress clothes and things like that. But I just remember when we were after customs and immigration started to walk towards the doors and the closer we got to the doors the louder it was on the other side. And the doors slid open. And oh my gosh, there was literally a thousand people standing there. And there was these guardrails that, you know, kept everyone on one side or the other. And literally my wife and I stood in the doorway as it goes open and close, open and close. <laughs> and it wasn't a matter of us saying, okay, that's it. We're turning around and heading back. It was more right. of like, I just needed a moment. You have to steal yourself. And a bit. I yeah. <laughs> Oh, and I started walking forward and I told my wife, I said, you look to the left, I'm going to look to the right and just look for our name on a placard. You know, I felt like Moses and the Red Sea because <laughs> we were parted as we were walking. And then I just remember finally, and people are yelling, you know, for taxi or they're showing us name cards and stuff. I just remember finally seeing our name just sort of remotely in this mass of people and our name wasn't spelled correctly but I was like I don't care it's close enough I'm going I'm going with him and it was right from that moment that we realized our and plus our luggage got uh, delayed or in other words it never arrived it was going to come 24 hours later and you've just been traveling 24 hours but uh, right from that moment you just suddenly had this essence that Everything, you know, on the one hand, it's very chaotic, but on the other hand, there's a little bit, there's somehow organization that transpires here. But no matter, I think in the first couple of days, all of my senses were just overwhelmed. The smells, the yeah. sights, the sounds, yeah. everything just overwhelmed. And slowly, 
you start getting used to it and assuming a bit of more normalcy. But it took a couple of days, but it, it can be extremely overwhelming right. uh, at, at first sight. Right. Well, that was one thing I did want to talk to you about. I think a lot of times people are maybe afraid of traveling to a country either they don't know about or that is a bit chaotic at times. I know people are even nervous about traveling to Thailand without any kind of background. What advice would you give to someone who maybe wants to travel to somewhere that's very different from their home country, but is maybe a little bit afraid or nervous to do so? Just go. And the reason I say that is, I mean, I've traveled to the most dangerous places in the world, supposedly, because that's what people would think. And I remember I was uh, landing in Kuwait and doing a, a, a destination or a journey through uh, the Middle East. And I just remember Kuwait, it was my first destination. And everybody was saying how much of a mistake I was making. Like they were like, hadn't you seen the news? Haven't you seen Iraq is right next door and Iraq is going through major upheaval. You could be kidnapped or there's bombings, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and uh, I shouldn't go. I should not go. But, you know, I went and I traveled throughout the entire region of, you know, there was Kuwait, Bahrain, Doha, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Oman, all of these places. And, and when I came back, that's when people were like, so what was it like? How dangerous was it? I said, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe how dangerous that place was. And people lean forward. So what did you see? I said, what did you experience? What was so dangerous? I said, I tried to cross the road and it was so difficult. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, <laughs> that's the dangerous part. And they're like, what about the kidnappings, bombings and terrorism? I said, it's safer for me to walk around in Bahrain at midnight than it is for me to sometimes walk around in Vancouver at midnight. Sure, yeah. It, it's interesting because the people there are so amazing. The, the culture there, the food, you have to experience it. With caution, I will tell you, there is something extremely dangerous that I did encounter in the Middle East on one of my trips. Uh, I was speaking at a conference in Bahrain. The conference ended on Thursday and I was leaving on Saturday. So this uh, person at the conference, this wonderful young woman, uh, she basically said, look, uh, I'm going to pick you up on Friday morning. I'm going to take you around Bahrain. And I was like, no, that's that's perfect. Thank you, because I, I do have time. So she arrived at uh, my hotel in the morning. And as I came to the car, she just sort of popped out of the car and she said, Sam, I'm so sorry, but the plans have changed. I said, oh, well, that's OK. You go do what you have to do. She goes, no. My mom says I have to bring you home for lunch. Now, have you ever sat across a mother who's cooked an entire 12 course meal and there's an empty plate in front of you and she's got the spoon. Oh no. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. That is extremely <laughs> dangerous. That's the most dangerous thing I encountered in the Middle East was this Bahraini mother uh -huh. who wanted to feed me with gratitude and appreciation. Mm -hmm. That was the most dangerous part. My recommendation to Anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're ever in that situation, eat extremely slow. That's my <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> but that's but that's an example of, of how you have to travel the world. You have yeah. to see things. I mean, yeah, of course, you don't walk around with $100 bills coming out of your pocket and stuff. But if you go there with just an open mind, with appreciation, and, uh, you know, just curiosity, 
Oh, mm-hmm. people will just go out of their way for you. And I have made so many tremendous friends around the world as a result of being open to this. Like you said, food is such a good way of building those connections. I mean, I don't think there's anywhere in the world where people yeah. are like, you know, don't eat our food. Oh, no matter where you go, people want to share their food with you, you know, and that's such a good door into the culture. Oh, totally. And, and to speaking of food, I want to read you this quick little quote, which I think captures the essence of what we're talking about here. Travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you. Hopefully, you leave something good behind. And that was by Anthony Bourdain as we're talking about food. Like, talk about... I think he is one of the people that I hold in such high regard because he broke down barriers. And it it was one of those things of, you know, you don't have to put yourself at harm or risk or anything like that, but you would be amazed at how open people are and want to share. Right. You can talk about practicalities all day, but when it comes down to it, you're right. You just have to kind of throw yourself into these situations and embrace it, I think. Embrace it for everything that it is. Well, and, you know, for example, my best friend and I, we went uh, to China and uh, Singapore. And I just remember as one example, because I've seen it happen numerous times. And again, you see the difference between the tourist and the traveler, because there were all these tourists there. And breakfast time, oh, they're having the toast, eggs, bacon, my friend and I, we're going for the congee. We're going for the, um, you know, just uh, the fried rice and uh, just sort of like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to try it anyways. <laughs> right. right. I love a good English breakfast as much as the next guy. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you just have to, like you said, even if you don't know what it is, just go for it. And, you know, yeah. I, my, my advice is like, even if I don't like something, I might not like everything, but I want to try it at least once oh. as long as it looks you know, good and looks clean. I'll go for it. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I mean, yeah, but use caution. Yeah. I mean, right. if you've seen flies land on it, yeah, maybe avoid it. But right. equally, if they're cooking it right then and there, then uh, and you take it away and everything is fine. You'd be amazed at uh, how much flavor there is and how much. Uh, and and it, yeah, I get it. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart, but equally at the same time, there's a balance. What are you missing? You know, they, they will tell you that this is whatever it is, and you can make a decision if you're game enough to try it. Yeah. And if not, then that's okay. That's yeah. okay. You don't have to. But equally right. at the same time, some of the best food I've had, I don't even know what it was, but it was really good. Uh, were, were there any interesting experiences that you had in India that didn't make it into the book? Anything that, any fun stories yeah. that just you just couldn't fit in within the pages? Actually, the book itself covers off two weeks. There's a third week that we were in India as well. But uh, writing the book, it was almost like, you know, finding the village and, uh, you know, going on that journey happened at the end of uh, like that second week. And if we were to go to that third week, it's almost like you hit the climactic part and then it just sort of slows down. But that third, the third week was actually really nice as well because... I really felt in that third week that we were there because we had a guide and we had people showing us around, but, but we really, I wanted to see India for what it was, not from a tourist eye. 
But that third week, the training wheels came off because now we didn't have a plan or something that was really set. So we had to, for example, uh, take a train down to Jaipur, from Delhi to Jaipur, and we had to do this on our own. Now, we had our taxi driver from the hotel in Delhi drop us at the train station. And oh my gosh, it was chaotic. It was, you know, but it, what was interesting is there was such a crowd of people, people wanting to carry your bags. And, uh, you know, obviously because the coolies who are the bag carriers want to get their tips. But amidst all of this chaos, I told my wife, I said, oh my gosh, I don't even know where our train is. I have no idea if we, we've got these vouchers that we got, but I don't even know if this is going to get us to, and what's our backup plan? If this doesn't happen, do we go back to our hotel and rebook or what? But somebody had told us, you know what, you just get to this platform and there'll be sheets of paper pasted on the wall. Just look for your name. And I was like, there is no way that's going to happen in this chaotic place. But sure enough, we found a platform and sure enough, there was sheets of paper. And I looked and I said, there's our name and there's our seats and there's our car, which when we go in, I mean, it's so chaotic, but it's organized. There's a system. There is a system, but I I don't know how it works. Right. I mean, that that's one part. And then we got to Jaipur and, uh, you know, we almost like it was more of a bit more of a relaxing pace. And then we mm -hmm. went down to Udaipur and the Lake Palace Hotel and the elegance of that place and uh, a lake, uh, sorry, a, a, a hotel that sits on a lake and you have to be uh, taken by boat there. So, you know, we really did um, enjoy the splendor of that. And that's where, yeah, the training wheels were off, but we still got to experience uh, other parts of India, but we didn't want to sort of dash around from too many places. Like I really wanted to experience, and that's the other part is, you know, yeah. I've got people who, for example, you know, did an 11 hour layover in Frankfurt and they mm -hmm. went to, you know, four hours into Frankfurt and came back. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, basically they said, oh, yeah, no, I've seen Germany. And I'm like, no, you haven't seen Germany. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't want it to be where, you know, we were in Delhi and then, you know, two days later we're here. And then two days later we're, you know, in southern India, two days later we're in Chennai and you know, I wanted to just really get a bit more of an essence of the place as opposed to running around and saying, well, yeah, no, I've seen, you know, uh, Goa and I've seen this place. No, I want to experience it. I don't just want to see it. It still wasn't the time I wish I, I mean, I wish I had more time in India and it was only a three week journey, but, uh, you know, I really wanted to concentrate in a specific area, part of it to find the village and part of it to you know, experience the cultural identity as well as just what it meant to be in India. A lot of times when people want to travel here in Thailand, you know, I give them these these tips of things that they ought to do, and they don't always seem like the big things to do. You know, for example, I always say, like, wherever you are, I think it's a lot of fun in any new country to go to a supermarket and just see what a supermarket mm -hmm. is like, see what's on the shelves, see what the fruit is like. What kind of things would you recommend somebody to do in India? Maybe that's not the the big sites. Obviously, you yeah. want to see the Taj Mahal, but like, what if what are the just daily life things that you think somebody should do if they want to really see some yeah. slice of life? You know, I totally agree with you. In fact, uh, when I was in Thailand the last time, my cousin and I, yep, we went grocery shopping and we picked uh -huh. up all of our groceries. 
Yeah. I still have my I still have my Thai black pepper still left, but I use it very sparingly because I don't know when I'm heading back again. But uh, but for India, part of it is there's what they call dabas, and dabas are the roadside cafes. Go and hang out there and uh, have your chai and pakoras or chai and samosas. Uh, the way I describe it is you're pretty safe with either pakoras or samosas because anything deep fried should be killing the germs. Yeah, nothing's, nothing's living on that, right? <laughs> not, not, not in an Indian fry up. But I would say, I would say the um, amazing things would be those dabas. That's something to really check out. And you get the authentic food and they're so flavorful. Uh, in Delhi, one thing that I, I found, which I just, well, there's a few things I found, but uh, in Delhi in particular, there was this thing called the Lotus Temple. And it's with the Baha'i faith. And it was almost like this gem that was uh, within the confines of Delhi. But when you go in, it even says you are not allowed to talk. There was just silence. And that was beautiful. Uh, so that was something I really liked. Uh, where we stayed in uh, Jaipur, uh, there's the uh, Trident Hotel. I don't know if the name still exists, but right across from it was a lake. The most amazing sunrises and the most amazing sunsets. And there's a, I guess, a palace that's right on this lake. But it's no longer in a, 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 well, I don't know if they revitalized it, but it just sits there. And just the essence of seeing that palace amongst the shadows and the lights uh, as it's sunrise or sunset, uh, that was that was truly amazing. Uh, the other part that I really found uh, fascinating was uh, the Jagdish temple in Udaipur, where it almost has this beautiful, intricate artwork uh, embedded into the stones. Uh, you know, that was interesting. And see, for me, it's also, I agree, like, yeah, the Taj Mahal and, you know, what, what you need to see. But equally at the same time, you know, just little hidden gems that exist that if you just are open to it and you get to experience it uh, is uh, is magnificent. And I remember when we were traveling about just even uh, what I do is I often with my um, my uh, phone or whatever, we'll put the instrumental music of that country and just sit in the car. And as the car is going, you see the fields, you see people working in the fields or you see the shops and things like that. It's almost like you have a running screenplay happening right before wow. your eyes. Yeah. I've never thought of doing that. That's that's oh, amazing. I'm going to definitely try that. Anywhere I go, I, I will upload Middle Eastern music, Thai music or anything. And then just there, and you just listen to it as you go. It's just really magnificent. Wow. That's a fantastic tip. I have never thought to do that. That's brilliant. Uh, at the risk of sounding negative, I certainly don't want to sound negative, but one of sure. the things we like to talk about on this show is when things go wrong, right? That's where all the best stories come from. So either on your adventures in India or your other adventures around the world, were there any moments when a disaster of some sort turned into an adventure or turned into a really good story that you can share with us? Well, there's a couple of things. One is uh, our luggage not arriving in India and you've, <laughs> right. and you've traveled 24 hours. And I don't know why I didn't, I didn't do this, but Every time I travel, I always have just an extra T-shirt, socks, mm -hmm. and underwear in my backpack. That's a great idea. But for this trip, I didn't do it. And what happened? 
Of course, the one time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then it was almost like you're 24 hours in these clothes. And uh, what we wound up doing is fortunately our hotel had uh, robes. So we were able to actually wash our clothes in the sink and then dry it. And it never really dries thoroughly the next morning. But, uh, you know, you, you learn some lessons that way. That was one thing that uh, came up. But as a result of that, we had some challenges. We got the luggage back, but then it was just trying to connect with the airline regarding compensation for what we had to buy and stuff like that. And it was just always leave a message. They'll call you back. They never call back. And I just remember finally the last day we got, we were leaving the country. We got to the airport and uh, I explained our situation to the people again. And uh, the, I guess the guy who was responsible for the airline for that uh, place, you know, felt okay. And he called us and he said, okay, I got some good news and I got some bad news. Mm -hmm. The good news is I was able to actually upgrade you guys to first class. And I said, well, what's the bad news? He says, well, the seats aren't together. So your wife and I, your wife and you will have to sit separately. And I said, so what's the bad news? And then my wife, my wife just sort of gave me this stare and the guy just sort of smirked and had to look away for a bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's one of the things, but um, actually it was also the fact that uh, the, the journey itself to find my grandfather's house, because, you know, there was a lot of twists and turns. Uh, yeah. There was moments that I thought this was not going to materialize because, you know, people had guided us to a place. There was a lot of, you know, people said, why are you searching for the village? You I'm not going to find it. And there were moments in the book where you thought you had gotten really close and then it was yeah. just a dead end. And it was it's be uh, so frustrating. It was, it literally felt like, uh, you know, you go with this anticipation yeah. because you think you know where this is and you get there and it, you, you know, you're all ready for, you know, am I being reunited with ancestors or, you know, family members, you know, like you say, it's like, no, this isn't the right house, but, you know, maybe the house looks like this house and they took us to another place. And, you know, five times I would be, you know, we went to these different places, but the realization was we weren't even in the right village. Mm -hmm. And I, and I just remember at that moment, uh, on the one hand, feeling very disappointed. I mean, yeah, we captured the identity piece, but I really wanted to do this for my family, my father. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the next day, the driver came back and he said, okay, and my wife thought we were going shopping, which I said, no, <laughs> we're going back to the town. We're going to go to the town. We're going to go ask people right. if they've heard of this village. And again, you were getting people saying, well, never heard of it. Or why are you looking? You're not going to get a good reception. So there was mm -hmm. a lot of noise. But uh, one person in particular just said, oh, you're, the village you're looking for is up the road this way. Mm -hmm. uh, or that's what he thought. So I'm, I'm very guarded at this point, very cautious. And I even wrote about that in my journal. So we drive to this village and sure enough, there's this old man sitting by this archway, just staring at the ground. You know, he must be like 80, 90 years old. We give him the picture. He sort of looks at it and he says, well, I don't know about the house, but there's a guy in the back of the picture. The picture is like so dingy and faded. Mm -hmm. I can't even make out the faces. And this guy says, well, I think I know who this is. And he gets into our vehicle. We drive to a house. Ten people come out, which was very common. And I remember writing in my journal, here we go again. I was already ready and prepared for setback and failure. Mm -hmm. 
And all of a sudden, this lady looks at herself in the picture and she said, that's me. Who are you guys? That's me in the picture. And I was just like, that moment, I had to sit there going like, did I hear this correctly? And she was like, yeah. And I said, no, no, is this you? And she said, yeah, this is me. But who are you? And that's how we uh, found it. But it was definitely setbacks along the way. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing that I would also say, and this, this is anywhere that I've traveled. Some of those setbacks or detours lead you to some of the most amazing places. And that, but you have to go with an open mind and an open eye. Otherwise, it's always just going to be like, well, we're lost or, you know, where are you taking us? Or what's, where is this? And uh, you're, not, you're not focused on what you see because you're thinking about what you're missing instead of what's there before you. You know, coming from the U.S., I'm sure Canada is quite the same. And it's a great aspect of the culture. You know, there's this whole idea of the melting pot where we all come together mm-hmm. and we're Americans now or Canadians now. But as you wrote about, you do kind of lose a little bit of that heritage. You know, for someone, really probably most Americans, most Canadians, they've lost that. When that link to the culture is gone, what advice do you have for someone who maybe wants to reconnect with their heritage or even rediscover their own ancestral roots, their own ancestral homeland? What advice, what even what practical advice would you have? Yeah, number number one start earlier, don't wait for a long time. Uh, okay. Because for me, when I was way, when I was trying to piece all of this information together, a lot of your uh, ancestral history is oral history, passed down from person to person. Now people or places like Ancestry or, or 23andMe and other sites like that, they've started to capture some of those details. But I would say start early because if people get older, they're going to start forgetting some of the key elements and parts of it. Equally at the same time, because I've had people say, look, it's it's great that you found your village. It's great that you found you know your roots. But we are so far distant. Other people will say that they're so far distant from it. There's no way I can find it. For example, I had one person who was, you know, basically my ancestors came from Sicily, but we don't know anything about it. There's no records or anything. You know, we will never recover that. But he had been to Sicily. And I said, okay, but here's the thing. When you went to Sicily, knowing that your ancestors are from there, did something feel right? Did it feel a bit like there's a connection here? And he said, yeah, yeah, no, because that's where my ancestors are from. Mm -hmm. I said, well, then you've succeeded at what you wanted to do. And, you know, you may not be able to find the house, the village, the town, but just the fact that you are in a place where your ancestors were, and if it connects to you, you've actually found that purpose and it ignites that piece of your identity so that you can say, you know what, I did experience it and there are things that just resonate for me. Yeah, I was fortunate. I found my grandfather's house Mm -hmm. and reconnected with, you know, family members from my grandfather's family. But equally at the same time, if that wouldn't have happened, I think I still would have felt there's something about this place that just really connected me and it still does. So, you know, there's different places and parts of the world that I've traveled and it's like, yeah, no, this just connects to me and and it makes sense. Right. In a lot of ways, it's a very good thing that we try to make that melting pot, that culture, that idea that Mm -hmm. we're all, we all come from somewhere else, but we're all American, but there is something that's lost. And I think that lately, maybe in the last few decades, there has been more of a push to, 
hang on to a little bit of our own culture in order to share it, but not to lose it and not to have it forgotten. Uh, yeah. Like my ancestors, they they made them change the pronunciation of their surname, and we lost a lot of that. You know, they wanted it to be Americanized, and it was gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think that there's really something incredible to be said for being able to reconnect and find yeah. some even a small piece of that. Oh, and and especially it's just that sense of connectedness back to a place, and that's right. the that's the magnificent part of it. Right, right. And I guess it kind of makes you feel like we're all connected in, in some way in this world. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about just writing in general, travel writing. So what is your writing process, your travel writing process, and what practical advice do you have for somebody who might want to sit down and write about their own adventures around the world? Seven, eight years ago, I never saw myself as even a writer. Yeah. And, you know, I did my first TEDx speech and that was on personal storytelling. And people said, you should write a book about storytelling. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, I've never, I don't even know where to begin. I've never even tried this. Yeah. Well, when I sat down and I, I just sort of started putting pen to paper, it started to flow. But the challenge was people were always saying, who's your audience? Who are you writing for? Mm-hmm. And I always found when I was trying to write for an audience, I just found it was really difficult for me to write. When I wrote for myself, the words just flowed. And I think that's where the uh, one of the things I would just tell people is, you know, on the back of your mind, keep in, keep in mind who your audience is. Mm-hmm. But the bigger thing is just write for yourself and the words are going to flow. What is it that you want to express? What do you want to share? Uh, that's why I said the the first book I wrote was on personal storytelling. And it was about this idea of we are all storytellers. We all have stories. But how mm-hmm. do you capture it? And that first TEDx speech I did, what I did was I came up with an acronym of CARPE. So CARPE Diem is Seize the Day. But CARPE is how you can build your personal story. It's what I call discovering the extraordinary in the ordinary. We're oftentimes just going through life in autopilot. Embedded in the ordinary are these tremendously extraordinary experiences, and they're not epic. These are small things. So CARPE basically stands for curiosity, appreciation, reflection, perspectives, experience. So I go through life with a curious nature. So for example, what I have is, I'll give an example of something that's ordinary, but I'm going to make it extraordinary. So You know, I carry with me puzzle pieces, Mm. simple little puzzle pieces. And what I do is I give them out to people. It's been about 5,000 to date. So the idea is if I give you a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, what can you do with one piece? Not much. That's what people feel like. They feel like the single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. They don't know where they fit in. They don't know what the bigger picture is. But right before your eyes, I'm going to transform it and make it into something extraordinary. Because if I give you this single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on me, the person who gave it to you. Because if I give you a single piece, my puzzle will never be complete without you. Do you realize how important you are? Do you realize how significant that is? And I can physically see a transformation on people's faces. Now, the Carpe principle of converting something from ordinary to extraordinary is about seven years ago, curiosity stopped me where I saw these puzzle pieces. I thought, okay, there's something about this. That's the curiosity piece. Then I appreciated it. That's the A for more than what it is, as a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. But the way to appreciate is to reflect and you add purpose and meaning to it. 
And we all have perspectives. So by adding perspectives into it of our history, our oral history, you add more significance to it. And if you don't capture your story as an experience, your story will die an untimely death. It will never be remembered. It will never be told. But that's an example of how you make something ordinary into the extraordinary. But that's also how all around us, we have these amazing stories. And I remember writing in that first book, there's fear in me in writing this book because of what people may think. But the bigger fear is, what if I don't write this book? So I encourage people, your journey is so important. And it's important to you. And if it's important to you, it needs to be shared. So if you have the two books now, have you thought about writing any others, writing about any of your other adventures? You know, that it seems like you've been to some amazing places around the world. Have you considered maybe writing some of those into another book? I think uh, there is a book that I am presently co-authoring. It's actually a children's book on leadership and followership. Wow. And maybe there is more that I will write about travels to different mm -hmm. parts of the world, much like, you know, going around the world with an open mind, uh, you know, like the travels to the Middle East and, uh, you know, just all picking up little bits and pieces here. But the thing I will always share, though, is the Lost and Found book, that's going to be my magnum opus. In other words, right. no matter what I write, I don't think anything will ever exceed the expectations or, or just the quality of what that book was. Well, it's just inherently so personal. Yeah. And I think in, uh, as well as the writing another book, I think the Lost and Found book, I think the next piece of this one is to actually try to make it into a screenplay. Well, that is a movie I would definitely love to watch. <laughs> no, no, no. Michael, if it ever happens, I've already said whoever, I don't care what they say, uh -huh. I need to have a cameo in that movie. Okay. And okay. hey, I'll invite Michael too. You can be the tourist and oh, you'll please. be in the background. Yeah, I'll just wander around the background. I have my camera. I'm very good at looking like a tourist. <laughs> and I'll be the chai wala, the one who's serving tea Perfect. to you. Perfect. And well, You know where to find me. Definitely send me an email. I will be there wherever it is. That's great. Well, are there any other thoughts or stories or anything that you'd like to add before we kind of finish up today? Well, I, I think the, the really significant thing I always want to share with people as we mm -hmm. as we wrap up today is travel. I mean, go out and see the world, leave your country behind and experience the place, the people, the sights, the flavors, the sound, you name it. I also want to share with you one of the quotes that I live by. Everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. In other words, we are all living stories, stories that need to be shared. And, you know, whether it's your family history stories, whether it's your own story, uh, there is so much significance. I mean, if you go through life with your eyes open, your mind open, I mean, I have been able to see some amazing things. I mean, I've, I've slept on the Great Wall of China with my best friend overnight. Wow. Uh, we went, not only saw the pyramids of Egypt, we went into the pyramids. I've seen... Uh, gray whale in the wild, three feet away from flowing lava, Petra and its magnificence. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I just hunger for that sort of experience. But everybody has stories. Let's, let's just take the time to share your experiences and embrace what you are experiencing. Well, I am so happy that you shared your experiences with us today. 
Uh, I think that, well, I'm certainly inspired, and I think that our listeners really will be as well. So well, what's next? What are your next adventures? What have you got on tap? Anything big in the future or any big dreams that you have? I mean, it's still going to travel. And I think uh, it's it, now it's a matter of, okay, I've, I've been feeling like a caged bird for a period of time. My <laughs> wings are going to spread. I think, uh, right. yeah, I think uh, definitely want to make a trip back to Thailand. I use mm-hmm. that as my as my base. But then uh, Vietnam, I have never been there. I want to experience Vietnam. Uh, I need to go back to the Middle East, but um, I'm also looking at uh, Costa Rica. I've I've got oh, wow. uh, an opportunity to do a retreat there. So there's all of these uh, areas and places uh, that I I really do want to continue to explore, and mm-hmm. even going back to where I've been, it's you know to to revisit and to explore. So yeah, there's so much more to do in life. Um, th- that actually really reminded me of one final thing. I wanted to ask, you know, during this this time of COVID, as you say, we all feel like we're sort of caged up. How have you managed to keep adventure and and discovery in your life yeah. when you've been mostly stuck either at home or just stuck locally? I think part of it is I came up with an acronym that I share with people. And as you can tell, I, I really do embrace acronyms. Yeah. Uh, what I've said is there's a need for us to care right now. And what care stands for is collaboration, adaptability, resilience, and empathy. Uh, collaboration is the fact that we all have something to contribute. And let's, instead of holding back, let's share with each other. So let's collaborate. The A stands for adaptability. Uh, We've all had to shift and change our lifestyle. Let's always embrace this adaptable lifestyle. Resilience. This isn't over today, tomorrow, next week, maybe even next year. So let's build this resiliency into our life. And empathy is showing care and compassion to each other because you don't know what people are going through. Yeah, I'm going to be traveling again, but equally at the same time, let's uh, look at the opportunities that are here, not as problems, but as opportunities. What are we building for ourselves? What are we learning and, and doing that's going to make us better people? So I've, instead of going outwardly, because I can't travel right now, right. My, I just booked my first travel, which is to Ottawa, but uh Instead of looking at it outwardly, I think I've really looked at it inwardly and how can I contribute to society and people. Right. Great. Well, Sam, where can people find you online? I mean, if you go to my website, sam-thiara.com, so sam-thiara.com, my book is there, so you can always find it there. I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter, so you can also find me there. And... uh, Especially if you go to my website, there are about 180 blog posts about, you know, the other side of my life is coaching and mentorship. So there's a lot of comfort in what I write for people, but equally at the same time, there's a, and it's all available. So that's, uh, that's something that you can always capture as well. Great. Very good. Well, we are so happy to have you on today. Thank you so much. You are welcome back anytime. Uh, please, yeah, let me know after your next adventure and we'll have you back on to talk about that as well. You're more than welcome. And when you run out of that Thai black pepper, send me a message. <laughs> I can maybe try to ship you some. But if you've never had Cambodian black pepper, got to say, it might be even a little bit better. <laughs> yep, no, I think, uh, Michael, I appreciate that. But no, I have to come there and pick it up myself. <laughs> okay. That gives me the reason. It gives me okay. the reason. Well, then when you come here, I will uh, get you some street food and we'll definitely catch That's up. That's it. Then. 
Great. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I absolutely loved it. I really enjoyed the book so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your stories with us today. No, definitely. And thank you for the opportunity to share. And uh, I really greatly enjoyed this conversation today. That was, please go and read his book. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you, you feel like you're there. You can really feel that the, the chaos mm-hmm. of India. And like he talked about oh, in the man. interview, he does such a good job describing it that you kind of feel that sensory perception. You feel like you're you're really there. It's a very good book. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting, um, a little bit what you said before the interview is that, you know, he growing up he's was canadian and in canada he's considered canadian just like you know you can live in the u.s and be ethnically from anything but you're still american or still canadian even if i do get thai citizenship i'll never be thai no matter what i do i will never be thai but if we go to the u.s my wife could be american you know and that's the difference Mm -hmm. that's that's really the difference between a country like thailand or a country like America. I will never be Thai, even if I'm a Thai citizen, and I'll always be seen as a foreigner. But if you go to a country, and it is getting very patriotic, if you go to America or Canada, you can become Canadian or American, and you know, you're seen as as much of a citizen as anyone else is. And that's, I think, one of the part of the beauty of the of that. But at the same time, there's something that people feel like they're missing. Like Sam talked about, like he felt like he was missing that because he didn't grow up holding on to that heritage. The DNA test, if you are enough of one thing, mm-hmm. it can narrow it down to like city and county. And like for me, it's like the British part is Greater London, which thanks. <laughs> but the Irish part is Donegal. So I know cool. like where that part's from. And I'm like, I need to go there. Good luck narrowing down all the Barretts and Donegal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think that's very cool. I think that who are you is such an important question because everyone deserves to have that connection. Everyone deserves to mm-hmm. to know who they are. Sam was just such a fantastic guest. I loved having him on. I loved hearing about his experiences. And again, yeah, please go buy the book. It is so good. Thanks so much for one, just being on our show. Yeah. And two, thank you for writing the book. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for me. I'm very picky with books. I have a Kindle and it's full of things. And it's true. Like what, what Michael said, it, it really does grab you. Yeah. And you, you do sort of really feel like you're in India, a country mm-hmm. which I know very, very little about. And honestly, until now, wasn't really on my radar of places I really want to go. Not for any reason in particular, just didn't think about it. Right, right. But now I'm like, I kind of want to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to be a guest on the show, please do get in touch right in hello at attemptadventure.com or go to our website and click on that little contact us button. You can find us there as well. And we'd love to hear from you. All of the uh, links, all of the things that Sam talked about, Mm -hmm. pictures that he took when he was there, we'll put all of those on our website, attemptadventure.com. There will be links in the show notes to everything. All right, James. It's time for our favorite segment, Adventures in the News. And this week, sir, it's your turn for the final adventure it in the is. news of 2021. What have you got for us today? It's kind of heartwarming. The title of it is Farmer Rescues Abandoned Kittens That Turn Out to Be Leopard Cubs. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. 
One life officials in India say a man who rescued what he thought were a pair of abandoned kittens brought them inside his home and only later discovered that they were leopard cubs. <laughs> oh my gosh. And he grew suspicious when they appeared to be growling instead of meowing. <laughs> and you said that was that was in India? Mm-hmm. Let's see. It was in Madhya Pradesh's Dar district. The forest department took custody of the felines after they confirmed they were leopard cubs, a male and a female, and they were taken to a rescue center. Okay, well, that's good. I was going to say, like, what do you even do? Because, like, you don't want to, like, turn them back out to die, you know, to mm-hmm. starve or to freeze. But, and then, like, I kind of want to keep them. at the same time you probably shouldn't keep a leopard no please if you rescue a wild animal do not keep it if they do not make good pants but i mean there's that little part in your head that's like what if i had two leopards (laughs) i have a regular cat (laughs) yeah i mean i have two regular cats they think they're leopards (laughs) but you know maybe not i mean i guess rescuing two leopards is an adventure you know what, James? It is an adventure, and that's the perfect bookend to this season. Because if you remember, our very first adventure in the news was about that Thai Navy guy rescuing those cats off a sinking boat. We open and close with rescued cats. You know what, James? It's like poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to this final episode of Season 1 of the Attempt Adventure Podcast. We'll be back in February with new content, new episodes, and we'll have some other little surprises up our sleeves for you too. Definitely. We've got a lot planned for season two. It's it's really going to be a good one. We know that you'll enjoy it. We enjoy it. So please stay tuned for some great stuff coming up. Definitely. I've already recorded our first interview. Oh yeah. Like an hour ago. So we've already got content made for season two. Here's a little teaser. It's a Valentine's episode. Romantic. (laughs) (laughs) anyway you can find us on our website attemptadventure.com that has all the show notes all the episodes pictures links to all of our social media alternatively you can find us on all those social media sites it's all attempt adventure yeah you can email us directly hello at attemptadventure.com or the easier way is probably just to go on the website and click the contact us button you can find us on all your favorite podcast apps. Please go leave us a review. Tell us what you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, five stars if you're feeling nice. It, it helps a lot. And, and we really do appreciate all the feedback that we get from, from our listeners. Definitely. All I can say now is thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Yeah. Stay safe out there. And until next time, keep adventuring. <laughs>